All right, so before the service started, I was joking with Pastor Larson, or at least he thought I was joking, and I uh, picked up a copy of the projector we just got in the mailbox, and I said, well, that'll be a great sermon for tonight. So I've got my outline with me here for tonight. Just kidding, uh, only partially. But uh, I'd like to invite you to join me in the book of Genesis tonight, chapter number 36. Chapter number 36. And uh, while you're finding your place there in Genesis 36, the portions of this projector that I would like to bring to our attention is the first article is entitled The Destructive Sin of Complaining by Pastor Todd Brainerd. He had some good points uh, there. And then the guest editor was talking about Lot, the tragic consequences of one's father's sinful choices. That's a mouthful. Lot. Remember him? back in Genesis 13 and 14 and, and 17 and 18. Yes. Lot, the tragic consequences of one's father's sinful choices by Pastor Travis D. Smith, uh, Dr. Travis D. Smith. And I just thought that was interesting because he's talking about Lot and that will come into play with what I'm talking about tonight as we study uh, Genesis 36. Then uh, there's a section on proverb practicals that's probably pretty good. Then turning through the projector, I came also to, uh, uh, let's see here, it was this uh, excerpt from Dr. Bob Jones Sr. on We Need Preaching Against Sin, excerpted from his book, Do Right. So these men, uh, you can take it, take it from them as well. Uh, some vital lessons we're hopefully going to glean tonight from Genesis chapter number 36. Uh, now, I've given you time to get there, and I don't have my verses written down, so I need you to give me a moment to get to Genesis chapter 36. We're going to read, I think, verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, and then I'll fill in the gap here, and we will close out uh, the Toledoth of Jacob tonight. And this will be, um, you know, I was in, when I was in college, there were times where uh, the teacher might, might have felt crunched for time, and sometimes we would come in closer to the end of the semester, and we would find that all the notes that we, have been, we had been filling in the blanks for so frantically, you know, towards the, towards the beginning of the semester, now the teacher comes in and, and he hands us the final section that we didn't get to because, uh, well, we ran out of time or we took a, di- a diversion or, you know, something happened during the semester that he didn't have as much time as he thought he would. And so he would come in and have some printed out notes for us to be able to take home with us. So for those who are in our institute, if you'd like those printed out notes, you can have my notes from Genesis 35, 16 through 36, 43. And you can take one of these home to Miss Diane. I'm sure she'd appreciate that. But this is basically my expository outline that we'll be using tonight. And so if you'd like a copy of that, I have some extras here that I did bring with me for those who would be interested in that after the service. So Genesis 36, I want you to read down in verse number 6 with me. The Bible says, And Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the persons of his house and his cattle and all his beasts and all his substance, which he had got in the land of Canaan, and went into the country from the face of Jacob, from the face of his brother Jacob. Verse number 7. Read this out loud with me if you would. For their riches were more than that, and the land wherein they were strangers could not bear them because of their cattle. Uh, Verse number 8. Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. The title of my message tonight comes from the last part of verse number 43. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. That's my subtitle. Took that right out of the verse because that's a striking statement to me. As I read through chapter 36 and everything closed out and we read the rest of the story concerning Esau, this is it. This is it for Esau. And it simply says, he is Esau. Maybe I didn't give it enough emphasis the first time I read it. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Let that register and sink in. Maybe that's a little closer to what the uh, what Moses would want me to narrate it to you as. Uh, you, you know, Jewish people are very storytelling people. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that they like to tell stories, okay? Uh, 
that's still not supposed to be in a bad way. That I'm sure they're very truthful people, but uh, they like to tell stories. They like to narrate. Moses is very eloquent at, at storytelling. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. So as we wind down Genesis 4, are we in Genesis 4 now? Yeah, we have to be because Genesis 1 was beginnings. Genesis 2 was all about Abraham. Genesis 3 was uh, Isaac. Genesis 4 was Jacob. And then we're coming into Genesis 5 after this, which will be over the life of Joseph. As we wind this down, I want you to think about how it all concludes as we look at the end of the life of Jacob. Uh, Well, not the end of his life, but the end of the account, the end of the narrative concerning Jacob. And uh, so we look here and consider him in light of the sorrows that he still faced as he served God. The... um, the way that he surely had to look and and see how the Lord's hand apparently was on Edom, on Esau, and just draw out some applications and conclusions as we spend some time in the Word. Would you pray with me just for a brief moment? Lord, we thank you for your Word. And as we close out Genesis 35 and 36, looking at Jacob transitioning uh, into the story revolving around Joseph, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to Glean what we need to out of the passages tonight through our study, and I pray that you'd bless your people as they grow in the knowledge of your word, which would lead them closer to Christ. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I thought about having you turn over to Psalm 73 as we began this message tonight and um, read some things there. Now, Psalm 73, I mentioned when I preached through that that Dr. Tim Zacharias wrote an excellent exposition on that. If you're ever looking for a good book on Psalm 73, uh, you can you can put Tim Zacharias's book on your shelf. It's it's entitled "Having an Asaph Moment," and Psalm 73 is that lamenting psalm where Asaph inevitably comes to ask the question, "Why does it seem like the wicked are prospering? Uh, why do bad things happen to good people?" You know, why does it seem like when we try to live for God, things don't go as well as we think they should, and the people who are living with God uh, outside of their life seem to be prospering. And uh, he had to remind himself by the time that that psalm was concluded that the end of the wicked is not so. I think we can apply the same type truth to Esau tonight. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. My title for you tonight is the sorrows of the world in the life of God's children. And uh, we, need to, we need to ask the same questions in, in a right way, the way that Asaph did that would lead him to God in the end. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the godly seem to suffer so much sometimes? Why does God allow th- bad things to happen to good people? How come it looks like those who leave God out of their lives can apparently do so well? These are viable questions that everyone must must answer. And so my main thought out of Genesis 35 and 36 tonight for you is, a living for God does not exempt a person, especially does not exempt his children from sorrow. We should not expect to be exempted from temporal setbacks even. And I'll tell you, I don't don't remember who gave me this counsel, but I was told when I was a young Christian you better watch out because now the devil's going to have you in his target, right? Uh, the moment you step out and try to do something for God is the moment you can expect the devil to try to thwart that or just the trials of God to test you to see if you're really going to stick through it. It's not always from the devil, is it? Sometimes it could be the flesh. Sometimes it could be a test from the Lord to see if we're going to be faithful. Living for God does not exempt his children from sorrow, does not exempt them from temporal setbacks even. And I would encourage you to guard your soul against comparisons with the worldly, you know, like Asaph's doing. Why does it seem like the wicked are prospering and the godly are struggling and suffering? Uh, I don't know that Jacob, you know, is going to do that here, but I think by way of application, we can take that home with us. I would encourage you to guard your soul against comparisons with worldly in light of their temporal successes. It might look like they're getting ahead for a while. That's not going to be the end of the case if they leave God out of the picture. I would encourage you to have faith that in the end, 
The road for God's children will be abundantly blessed. That's going to take faith to get there, though, because you're not going to see it until you arrive at the end of the road. Can you have faith to hold on till then? Can you lay up those treasures in heaven? I would encourage you to avoid the inevitable bitterness and the eternal anguish that awaits those who live their mortal lives, their finite lives, and leave God out. There will be anguish of soul in the end. There will be a price to pay. There will be a reckoning. And oh, the bitterness, the bitterness of that end. Avoid that. Avoid it like the plague. Have faith in God. Have faith in Him. And so as we approach this portion of Genesis 35 and 36, we need to remind ourselves, Jacob has listened to God. (laughs) Finally in his life, how long has God been working on him to get him to where uh, he could be broken and used for the will of God? And the Lord showed up to Jacob when he was in Padanaram, when he was up in Haran, and he told him it's time to go back to Canaan. And Jacob uh, consulted with his, his wives, the daughters of Laban, And they said, yep, uh, we're nothing more than strangers in our dad's eyes. We're going with you. And so he packed everything up and left without Laban knowing. Laban chased him down, spent a whole week trying to catch up to Jacob. And God showed up to Laban in a dream and said, speak to him not for good or evil. Don't hurt him. Uh, And so then they had a meeting and they parted. And then after that, Jacob wrestled with a man through the night before he would meet Esau. And we talked about how that was the angel of the Lord. And as uh, Jacob was fearing to meet Esau. It turns out it was better than what he thought it would be, right? He meets Esau, and it's a happy reunion, whereas Jacob's thinking that his neck is on the line, that Esau's going to finally make up for all those decades before that he tricked him and, and took the birthright and the blessing and why he had left his home in, in Hebron to begin with. But Esau didn't receive him that way. Esau received him with gladness and happiness. And so Jacob then took a took a a way to be able to head to Shechem and he settled in Shechem. And he was there for probably quite some time until his daughter had the incident that surrounded her and the tragedy around Dinah and then Simeon and Levi taking up swords against all the inhabitants around the area of Shechem. And Jacob leaving that area with a stench in his nostrils and his sons having run his good name through the mud. Right? Uh, What about Dinah? Yeah, uh, well, we talked about that when we came through that chapter. And so as Jacob begins to listen to God again, he came all the way back down to Bethel. And God met him at Bethel, and he worshipped God there, and he offered to God there. And he got past Bethel to see El Bethel. And he, and he came to God, the God of Bethel. And Jacob was serving God. As soon as Jacob began to serve God, I want you to see what Moses records next. Back in Genesis chapter 35, we pick up the account in verse 16. And we see that sorrow is mingled with joy for Jacob. Now, he's just gotten back on track with God after the mess at Shechem. They got right with God. They purified themselves. They got clean before God. And then immediately, tragedy hits the home. And here you think, you know, now everything's going to turn out okay. Jacob's going to be all right. God's, he will be, he will be. But that does not exempt him from sorrow. And he has sorrow mingled with joy. And Jacob will wind up having to bury Rachel. If you look at verse 16 of chapter 35, we read these words. And they journeyed from Bethel. And there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, before she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Benoni is son of my sorrow. His father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. So Rachel is going to pass away while she's giving birth to Benjamin. Just because we're serving God does not exempt us from the sorrows of life. And this is a tragedy that strikes Jacob's home. Remember who Rachel is now. This is not Leah. This is not Bilhah. This is not Zilpah. This is Rachel. 
This is the very woman that he said to Laban, I'll serve for seven years if you'll let me marry your daughter. Fell in love with her. Love at first sight, just like Isaac and Rebekah, right? And just like Abraham's servant had found Rebekah by the well, Jacob too found Rachel in a similar scenario. And he works for those seven years, and then Laban pulls one over on him, pulls a fast one, and he winds up marrying Leah instead. He woke up in the morning, and lo and behold, it was tender-eyed Leah. love how the Bible describes tender-eyed. Tender-eyed Leah. And so then Jacob tries to straighten it all out, and Laban says, sure, for another seven years. Fourteen years go by. Well, he gets to marry Rachel before the 14 years is up, but he has to stay. He has to stay. And he works for 14 years and then stays on a little bit longer for probably 20 years total. He's with Laban before he leaves and heads back. But this was Rachel. This was the one that he would give anything, anything for. This was the one that he loved. She dies while giving birth to Benjamin. Benjamin is the twelfth son. That will make up the twelve tribes of Israel. So the number is complete. Twelve sons and one daughter, Dinah. So Jacob will then, in verse 20 and 21, put up a memorial for Rachel. When we were in Israel, we got to go to Bethlehem. And uh, it's a walled city today. It's a Palestinian city. And so uh, it's, it's not friendly to us, we had to have protection to go in there, and uh, we had to put on our yarmulke or a head covering. If you have something, men have to cover their head to go in, and uh, we had quite the reception inside Rachel's tomb. We got to go into Rachel's tomb and see the see the Orthodox uh, Jewish people there doing their doing their work and their scroll work, and they were having some kind of seminary class happening in there. You know, they have all their their locks and their hats and their the whole regalia. And, it was quite interesting. We had a good reception, though. They took us down a, a corridor, a hallway that had paintings and began to tell us all the stories. All these paintings that they had in this hallway were Bible stories uh, from Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. And they started going through all this history. You know, I was just basking in, in the Bible because it's all the Sunday school lessons that we always learn about, right? And so here we we're getting it right there in Bethlehem. Uh, and so to see their to see them going through the motions though, and to not realize that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the one. I mean, Rachel plays into the prophecies concerning Messiah because she's she's quoted of uh, her her children. She'll not be comforted for her children. What's that a reference to? Herod killing all of the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus Christ would be born. Rachel has a part in that. And so while we think about Rachel, Jacob memorialized her here. We memorialize her every time we tell the story about the birth of Jesus Christ. And we mention those babies in Bethlehem. We memorialize Rachel for her lack of being comforted there, prophetically speaking of Messiah. Now, Messiah is not going to come through her, though. Remember, she uh, Messiah is going to come through Judah, which is the son of Leah, not Rachel. Make sure you don't get that confused. So as Jacob makes this memorial for Rachel and mourns over her and buries her, then he moves in and continues to expand further into Canaan. And we read in verse 20, and Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. As Unto the day that Moses is writing this, that pillar was still there where you could go and see where Rachel would be buried was buried by Jacob. So Israel journey, verse 21. Notice it's not Jacob, it's Israel. I would encourage you to pay attention to when the Bible uses Jacob versus Israel, because I think there are some nuances that play into each time it's used in each respect. So Israel journey, this is everybody, this is the nation now. When it speaks of Israel from this point, you need to consider it as a national, a national purview. When it talks about Jacob, it's an individual an individual that's being discussed. So Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. So he spreads out further into Canaan land. And it came to pass as we pick up, okay, if things weren't bad enough, he's just buried his most beloved wife. That's a terrible thing to say, right? Because uh, he should have only had one to begin with. But 
he loved Rachel more than Leah, and that was pretty evident in how everything fell out. And it will be evident as we move forward in studying the life of Joseph. So he buries Rachel. And then secondly, not only has he had sorrow mingled with joy, burying Rachel, but having Benjamin born, now he's added sorrow because of sin in his family. Notice the Bible records, after he buries Rachel, we're told that Reuben sins against Jacob and commits treachery. So it came to pass, when Israel dwelt in that land, verse 22, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. So if it wasn't bad enough that he's mourning over Rachel, now Reuben goes and does this. We mentioned this last time about how uh, this is moving towards telling us Messiah will come through Judah. Because Simeon and Levi have been disqualified in Shechem. Now Reuben is disqualified and he's the firstborn. So Judah is the next one in line and that sets everything up for Messiah to be able to come through him. The line of the tribe of Judah, we covered that last time. So Reuben's treachery with Bilhah, that's Rachel's handmaid. Now, I don't want to read into the text too much, but if you just think about it, I think common sense will play out, don't you? Bilhah is whose handmaid? Rachel's. Who just passed away? Rachel. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you need to have parameters in your life, and I'm speaking to the men in here as well as the ladies. The easiest time for someone to fall into the temptation of adultery would be when you're trying to comfort someone of the opposite gender. Okay, and, and these are things that we need to discuss and talk about. Uh, when you think about having parameters for biblical counseling or any kind of thing that you do, let me encourage you, let me caution you, you be very careful about being that one to comfort someone of the opposite gender in times like this, especially if if you're not <laughs> the the husband or wife of that one. Leave that up leave that up to the spouse. Okay. Now I know this is concubine, it's a totally different situation. But I, I can see how if Reuben and Bilhah, you know, Reuben's the firstborn of Leah, Bilhah's Rachel's handmaid, I can see how they could have a thing going. Wouldn't be too far of a stretch, I don't think, especially if Reuben is the one that she finds a shoulder to lean on. I'm going to let that stay right there, but you adults are with me, right? You, you understand what I'm telling you? You understand the parameters and how you need to have certain protections in place? How many homes have been broken because spouses have trouble and the wife winds up going and getting comfort from a friend who happens to be a man and before you know it, there's a relationship happening and the whole thing's busted up. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of that happen. Just be careful. Now, Israel. Notice it's not Jacob. Israel heard of it. Remember I said, point out, the difference is when it names Jacob versus Israel. I don't think it was just Jacob that knew what was going on. The telltale signs were there. And Bilhah and Reuben were getting pretty close and everybody could see what was going on. This is adding sorrow because of sin. He's already sorrowing. Jacob's already broken over Rachel. And then Reuben goes and does this. Which, by the way, if you read the prophecies, it will come up. When Jacob gives the prophecies for his son in chapter 49, go read what he says about Reuben. It comes back to here. This is the nail in Reuben's coffin, so to speak, prophetically. And so Israel hears of his treachery. Now, if that's not bad enough, at the end of chapter 35, we continue reading. And there's, well, I've called it a dis disappointing comparison. Now, maybe you'd say, Pastor, you're reading too much into that. I don't know. I'm, I'm reading all of it together. I'm reading 35 to 36 together. And as the story unfolds, I can't help but notice it seems like Moses is pointing out, look at Jacob compared to Esau. Look at Jacob compared to Esau. Now, it's great. Don't get me wrong. Jacob's got 12 children. That's a blessing. Children are inheritance of the Lord. But he really only has 12. Hopefully you'll see what I mean by that here briefly. 
This is a disappointing comparison when you think about it. In the scheme of the promise, the covenantal promise, in, in, in the whole light of, of you know, having children as the sands of the seashore. I could see how this could be used to the devil to be one more thing. You know, it's like he knows how to get us, does he? It's not usually one incident in and of itself. It's usually a series of events. And then there's that one that's the straw that breaks the candle's back. That's usually how it unfolds. Well, this is kind of a disappointing comparison. The meager descendants of Jacob. In light of Esau's, here we've got 23, 24, 25, and 26. 23, 24, 25, and 26. Four verses. When we get to talk about Esau, we're going to have 43 verses. It's like 12-fold almost. 11-fold. That's like 11 times more verses about Esau's descendants than Jacob's. His meager, his meager descendants. This is kind of a disappointing comparison. You've got the sons of Leah mentioned in Chapter 35, verse 23. Who are they? Well, there should be a total of six if you count them up. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. So out of the twelve sons, Leah bore half of Israel in that sense. What would become the nation. You have the sons of Rachel listed next. In verse 24, Joseph and Benjamin. Then you have the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, Dan and Naphtali, there's two, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob, which were born to him in Padanaram. Now, we know, you know Benjamin was born, actually, as Rachel was dying in, in Bethlehem, but you understand what the story is saying here. These are they that were born to Jacob, his sons were 12. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. So there's your comparison. Now, pastor, it's not disappointing. This is going to be a great... Okay. Okay. Keep reading then. And we find out that there's sorrow upon sorrow. We, this is a great message tonight, isn't it? We began with sorrow. Rachel dies. We continued with sorrow. Reuben sins against Jacob. Now we're looking at how small his family is in comparison to his brother's. When he's the one that's supposed to be serving God and his brother's not even having God in his life at all. And then we pick this up and we find out it's time to say goodbye to dear old dad. Verse 27. Sorrow upon sorrows. Jacob and Esau come together to bury Isaac. And Jacob came unto Isaac, his father, unto Mamre, unto the city of Arba, Oh, by the way, Moses tells you here, that's Hebron. He comes back home. Remember where he left? He left Hebron in that area. So he comes back, comes back home, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And the days of Isaac were in hundred and four score years. Remember what happened when he left and he stopped at Bethel the first time? God told him, you're coming back. I'm going to bring you back. He's back. He's back in Hebron. Full circuit. And it's been probably 30 years since he left. Never got to see mom again, but dad's still there. And so, Jake, you know, Jacob's going to be there for the final days of Isaac. He returns home and he gets to spend those last days with Isaac. And Rebecca's not mentioned anywhere, by the way. But uh, it goes on to say the days of Isaac were in 104 score years. It's 180 years. 180 years Isaac lived. And he was born in Abraham's old age, right? He was born when Abraham was was 100. So this is a couple of centuries worth of human history we're talking about. A couple of centuries of human history would take us back near the founding of this country. Just put it in proper perspective. So this is the passing of Isaac. And they come for those final days. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. And I like how the Bible phrases this, being old and full of days. Lord, may that be. May each one of us that journey for you come to that. Not all of us will, I understand. Boy, to be able to say, I'm full of days. However many days that is, that's up to the Lord. But can you say, I'm full of days. 
It's time to go home. So Isaac gives up the ghost. He died, was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Now the last time we saw Esau and Jacob, you know, Esau was saying, I'm going to go back down towards Seir. Why don't you come with me, Jacob? And Jacob says, oh yeah, we'll catch up with you. And then he winds up going off to to Shechem instead. Remember that? That's the last time we have them together. Well, now they're back together for Dad's funeral. And from here, I think this was where it was determined. Some things, the way that they fell out, they're going to go separate ways. And that's where a lot of that's determined, I think, maybe even right here around burying Dad. Sorrow upon sorrows. Now let's recap. Okay, Jacob's gone through sorrow of losing Rachel. He's gotten joy through it because Benjamin was born, yes, but he lost Rachel. Reuben has sinned against him. Sorrow for sin. There's a disappointing comparison in light of how many descendants he has right now compared to Esau. Sorrow upon sorrows. Dad's gone. This is just getting better and better, isn't it? We're not done. We get into chapter 36, and i got to tell you, I read commentaries that said, you know, about expositing chapter 36. Not very many expositors even touch chapter 36. I understand why. If you read through chapter 36, I challenge you to come up with a message to preach out of chapter 36 of Genesis. It's a challenge. But I think when you take the larger, broad spectrum of it, and you look at what we're looking at, it makes a lot of sense. You cannot take chapter 36 out of the Bible. You can't. You cannot remove this and get the full story. In fact, if you eliminate chapter 36, or just breeze over it and don't pay attention to the names when you do your Bible reading, you're going to mess up later. You're going to mess up later. Because there are people that are named here. There are things that are talked about in chapter 36 that are key to understanding other portions of your Bible. Let's glean some of these. Okay, I'm not going to give you the exercise in pronunciation. Uh, I have put together, you know, my outline here, and if you can see on the back, I'll, you know, anybody who wants this, I'll give it to you. It's a breakdown because I don't know about you, but when I read through, you know, when it's laid out verse by verse, I come away and I'm going cross-eyed like this. I don't. Who's this? This person is trying to track it all down and point back to this and point back to that. And this person's named over here and some of them are repeated over there. And who's this tied to? And that's, oh, and this is it. When you get through it and you weed it all out and you take all the names and you put them in a list, I've done that for you. Here's a, here's a truncated, consolidated list that goes through all of the, the expository notes that Moses is going to give you on some of these key people. Do I know all of the events that surround it? No, I haven't figured all those out yet. I'd probably have to wait till I talk to Moses. Hey, you know, when you're talking about this one lady uh, right here, you know, gr- this grand, great-grandmother of so-and-so, why did you have that in there? What was so important about her? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have that portion of history, some of these extra-biblical things. But I guarantee you when Moses wrote this, whoever's reading it, you know, the Jewish people are going to go, Oh, okay, yeah, that's it. All right, yep, I got it. And it's, and it's going to click. It's going to connect. I have to kind of read it looking from this vantage point back and do the best I can on piecing some of that together. So chapter 36, we're not going to read through the whole chapter, obviously. That would be quite the exercise in pronunciation, especially to read it out loud. Some of them I have. But notice that we have now separation with... And again, don't throw anything at me if you think I'm reading into the text too much on this. But by way of application, I think there could be discouragement looming. I mean, think about it. We're getting ready to get into chapter 37 where, for all intents and purposes, Jacob's about to lose Joseph too. Don't forget that. This is what happens when you serve God? Sometimes it doesn't get better. It seems like it gets worse. Chapter 36. There's separation and discouragement looming. In light of the majestic lineage of Esau. In other words, the seeming prosperity of the godless. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do those that leave God out seem to do so well? Well, let's 
just briefly go over this. Verses 1 to 43 of chapter 36. This is my entire third point. I'm sorry, point number five, because we've already covered, count them, four. Doing pretty good tonight. Well, we got 43 verses. Hopefully, you'll understand it a little better when we're done. Notice, first off, Esau's expansion out of Canaan in verses 1 through 8. What's happening in verses 1 through 8? Esau is getting too big for Canaan in verses 1 through 8. So we need to get some of the backdrop here. Esau has had sons by intermarriage with the daughters of Canaan. Go back to the days when Jacob was still at home before he left for Padanaram. You remember what Esau did to get back at mom and dad? He went out and he found him three pretty Canaanite women and said, Dad doesn't like them, so I'm going to marry them. That was, that was a big mistake. A huge mistake. Because that then... I mean, that's intermarriage. Bottom line. And that's going to set him up now to go away from his own heritage. He's, he's drifting. Well, that's where the rope came untied from the dock. A long time ago. This is We're talking about decades ago. So notice Esau's expansion out of Canaan. He gains sons by intermarriage with the daughters of Canaan. The daughters of Canaan. That phrase. That phrase. It was either Waltke or... or um, I think it was Waltke. He commented on that. And he said that this is a derogatory phrase. In other words, this is not speaking well of Esau. By saying he went and took the daughters of Canaan. In Genesis 36, Moses says, Esau went and took the daughters of Canaan. In the New Testament, Paul says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Come out from among them. Be ye separate, saith the Lord. I will receive you unto myself. I will be a father unto you. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Same principle applies. Unequal yoke. So Esau here, he he hitches up with these daughters of Canaan in verses 1 through 5. His Canaanite wives, if you do the reading here, you'll find out he has three. Three Canaanite wives. Now, if you go back to earlier chapters, I think it's chapter 28, you're going to find different names listed. But can I remind you that women had two names a lot of times back in this day and time. So there's three women there, there's three women here. Just because they're different names doesn't mean they're three different women. I submit to you that I believe they're the same. Same three women. So don't let the names throw you off. Remember, Sarah is called, uh, what's her name? It's not, I'm talking about before it's changed. I'm not talking about Sarah and Sarai. She's called Ishtar or Ishtai or something like that. I can't remember the exact verse. I'd have to look it back up. But she had another name. Uh, and so having two names, being known as two names uh, as a woman, that's not uncommon. Okay, it's not unheard of. So he has three Canaanite wives. Ada, Bashamath, and Aholibama. Aholibama. I had to say that again. That's fun. Sometimes it is fun to pronounce these Bible names. Ada, Bashamath, Bash and math. Bash math. <laughs> I'm saying that for the younger people that don't like math in here. <laughs> Bash math. <laughs> Bash and math. And a holy bomb. Three wives. So he intermarries with these Canaanite wives and has sons with them. Five sons, if you count them. Respectively, uh, Ada had El- Eliphaz. Eliphaz, Eliphaz, we'll just say Eliphaz. Okay. Um, Bashamath had Reuel. Aholibama, she had Jeush, Jealam, and Korah. So she had three. Bashamath had one, and Ada had one. So that's how many sons with these three women? Five. 
five sons. And this is inter-ethnic now. This is, this is a Hebrew intermarrying with Canaanite women. Remember what uh, Shechem wanted to do? Hey, let's just, uh, you know, let's trade families here. Why? What was the purpose of that? Remember that the king of Shechem basically said, Hey, when they do this, we'll swallow them up. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. And if you want the world to swallow up your family, Christian, then you let your children go and marry unbelievers. And that's exactly what will happen. The world will swallow them up. It will not work the other way around. Now Esau is going to go and intermarry, and this will play out as we get through the list. How did he become Edom? Intermarriage. He married into the Horites of the land and basically got his standing as Edom there. That's where his lineage came from. He separates from Jacob into the land of Seir. So Canaan's too big now. He's had these three Canaanite women's, women and they, they bear these five sons and then grandsons we'll get into here later in just a moment. But it, the land's not big enough for them. I know what Moses is doing here. I'm pretty sure of it. You won't convince me otherwise. As we've studied Jacob, more and more, Moses has painted him like Abraham, hasn't he? So Abraham now is passed off the scene. Isaac and now Jacob is in Abraham's stead. Remember, Abraham had to come back into Canaan when God called him out of Ur. He left and stopped in Haran and came down into Canaan. Jacob was in Haran. He was up in Padanaram, and he comes back down into Canaan, and he stops and builds an altar to the Lord and worships God. So many parallels in the life of Jacob with the life of Abraham. So, just like in the life and the account of Abraham, we have good old nephew Lot. So, also in the account of Jacob, we have good old brother Esau. So, when you think of Lot being worldly and backslidden, you need to think of Esau as being worldly and backslidden. Because the same area, generally speaking, that Lot is going to cast his eyes on the well-watered plains is exactly the direction that Esau is going to go. Mount Seir. If you look at your map, you look at a picture of the Dead Sea and you get an, an, a, a Bible map that shows you where the countries were in Jacob's day, Edom is on the southeast side of the Dead Sea. That's right where Sodom and Gomorrah would have been. So he goes south of the Dead Sea, south and east. The Dead Sea makes its way and winds down into the Gulf of Aqaba. So Edom is going to span from the bottom of the Dead Sea all the way down that, that plain into the Gulf of Aqaba. We didn't get to go there, so we'll have to go back someday. But we did not get to visit Petra. Petra would be one of the prominent areas that you could see today in the area of Edom where Esau would have gone. So he separates from Jacob into the land of Seir, much like Lot separated from Abraham. If you read the verses side by side, it's almost word for word. And those were the verses we read when we started. So we compare Lot's separation from Abraham back in Genesis chapter 13 and 14. Jacob is portrayed as Abraham. Esau is portrayed as Lot. What was the end of Lot? It was bitter. What's going to be the end of, of Edom? In the end, it's going to be bitter. What was the end of Abraham? Blessed beyond measure. What's going to be the end of Jacob? Blessed beyond, uh, beyond measure. So let's continue on here thinking through this. So after, after Edom, after Esau expands out of Canaan, we note how Edom intermingles into an empire in Seir. Mount Seir is the area, and it's spelled S-E-I-R. If you look at a map, you'll see it that way. So let's look at this. There's basically five, five things that we talk about. Canaanite dukes of Edom listed in verses 9 through, 13, 9 through 19. Then the dukes of the sons of Seir, the Horite, in verses 20 to 30. 
basically about ten verses each, except for the last one. Then we'll have a summarized history of the kings of Edom in verses 31 to 39, followed by a recap of Esau's mighty dukes in verses 40 to 43. So that's a purview. Let's break it down a little bit further. The Canaanite dukes of Edom are listed. Look in verse number 9 and read these, and I'll just kind of boil it down for you. From Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz. Let's talk about Eliphaz. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. You know who I think this is? I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. Dogmatic about it okay? If you say, that's definitely not the same person, then I'm going to say, okay, sure. I'll go with you on that. But I'm, I submit to you, I think that this man shows up elsewhere in Scripture. Particularly in, a, in another book of the Bible, that's one of the oldest copies of written Scripture we have. Brother Mike's already gone ahead of you and found it because the name stood out to him. Eliphaz was Job's friend. Now let's put this into perspective. Job's friend, Eliphaz. We're told he is a Temanite, even. Now let me connect a bigger dot for you. I want you to go down to verse... Uh, let's see, in between verses 20 and 30, if you look down and you see the list where it says the sons of Dishan, D-I-S-H-A-N, find Dishan. Where is he from? What's the place centered around him? The sons of Dishan? Uz. You see Uz? There was a man in the land of us. Hey, maybe Job knew Jacob. It's possible. Maybe Job was from Edom. Maybe he lived in this area of us during this time. Maybe he knew Eliphaz, Eliphaz. Maybe Eliphaz was that friend that God showed up to and said, you need to go and take an offering and get right with Job, and Job's going to pray for you. And when he does, I'll hear him. And that's what turned Job's captivity. Eliphaz was one of the kindest friends he had, even though he still had the wrong conclusion about Job. But in this day and time, you see how you can't take this chapter out of your Bible? You'll miss so much. We have Eliphaz. This is interesting. This is interesting. Eliphaz was Esau's son with who? Ada. Okay? So Eliphaz, son of Ada and Esau, was this Job's friend? I think it was. He had some sons, and so the grandsons of Esau are listed. Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, Kenaz, and Amalek. Now, Amalek was born of a concubine whose name was Temna. We'll see her again in the list. So that's Eliaphaz's children. He had one, two, three, he had six. Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, Kenaz, and Amalek. Six sons of Eliaphaz. Ru- Ruel. This would be the daughter of Bashamath. Who is Bashamath? She is the daughter of... Are you ready for this? I hope you're... Good, you're sitting down. The daughter of Ishmael. Oh, So Esau says, I'm going to go to Uncle Ishmael. And he's got a pretty daughter, Bathshemath. And I know that's just going to... On Dad. Esau's a great guy, isn't he? He really loves his parents. Well, I'm sure he did. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Ruel was born of Bashamath, the daughter of Ishmael. And he had sons. He had four. Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. Those are his. Now, I do not know who 
the son of a holy Obama. Yeah, a holy Obama. It's interesting how it's laid out here because it goes with the sons, and then the sons, you know, are told having sons, not with a holy Obama. I think I know why. Because a a holy Obama is the only female duke in the entire list. She's a duke. She's a chief. Chief a holy bomb. You see what Esau's done now? He has married into royalty. He's married Ishmael's daughter. Daughter. He's married married her uh, his daughter. He has also married a holy bomba who is going to be of Zebion the Horite. She has three sons named Jeush, Jealam, and Korah. It's not the same Korah later on, so don't get confused there. Not at least what I can tell. So those are the Canaanite dukes from Edom. Those are who he had while he was in Canaan, and he goes down into Seir. Now let's look at the dukes of the sons of Seir the Horite. This is Genesis 36, 20-30. Alright, so we've got seven sons, I think, here. Let's name them. Look at your list. Look at your, your verses. You'll see Lotan, Shobel, Zibion. That's a Holy Bama's dad, right? Or granddad. It's, it's her granddad. Zebion is a Holy Bama's granddad. Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. So out of Lotan, we get... Oh, by the way, side note, Lotan is the brother of Temna. So Lotan happens to be Amalek's uncle. By the time we get done with this, we're going to see we're going to be singing, "I am my own grandpa." <laughs> Actually, there's a little bit of that going on here, I think, in some ways, because I'm trying to figure out oh, this is what in the world. This is yeah. There's some definite um, whoa, kissing cousins. All right. Of Lotan, we've got Lotan's the brother of Temna, he's Uncle Amalek. We've got Horai and Heman, Hemam, two sons of him. Of Shobel, we've got Alvin and no, there are no chipmunks. Sorry. Uh, Manehath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. So there's five sons of Shobel. We have of Zibion. Zibion is again the grandfather of a holy Bama. So we have Aja and Ana. Now this is interesting. Ana, we're told in here by Moses, is famous for something. You know what he's famous for? Well, no, you really don't. <laughs> Neither do I. But I'm going to go with the King James translators because I think they've got it figured out. If you have an ESV or you have another uh, translation, chances are they're going to tell you the King James translators are wrong and that this is talking about either vipers or hot, hot springs. But what does the King James translators tell you it is? Mules. Can I tell you what I think is going on here? I agree with Adam Clark. If you want a good explanation of it, go read Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible and you'll find out where I stand on this. But I think that before this time, mules didn't even exist. And that this is the guy who took and figured out, okay, if I put, if I put, you know, we've got these, because what does it say he was keeping when he found them? His father's donkeys. You know how stubborn a donkey is? Okay, who knows the difference? Somebody can help us out. What's the difference between a donkey and a mule? The donkey is as stubborn as all. Get out! You can actually do something with a mule. You can. They've got the strength of the donkey, but they've got the patience of a horse. That's the beauty of a mule. But the problem is they're sterile. You can't can't breed with mules. But it's interesting. If you you study out Greek history and you read Homer's Iliad, Homer actually references some wild, wild mules, female mules in this region this area in his in his Iliad. Could it could it be that you know all of this came out of this guy? He ma'am? Or what was his name? I lost it. Ana. Anan. 
Ana, famous for mules. Okay, so out of Ana, then we, he's the father of a holy Bama. So you have Zibian, Ana, who you know came up with the whole idea of breeding for mules, and his daughter is a holy Bama, connecting those dots. So out of Ana, who's a holy Bama's father, we also get Daishan. A holy Bama is the only female duke listed. Why do I say that? Because I want you to look look down at verses 40 to 43 in that list where it's recapping the mighty dukes of Edom. She should be the fourth one mentioned. The only female in the list. As far as I can tell. So, a holy Bama, her dad was Enoch. Out of Daishan now, we get Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Kiran. Out of Ezer, we get Bilhan, Zeavan, and Achan. Out of Daishan, we get Uz. Could this be connected to Job? Would he be in the place, the land of Uz? I think it's very possible. And we get also Aran. So there's 27. So far, let's do the math. We've had 13 Canaanite dukes that we've talked about from Edom from Esau, and we have 27 of the sons of Seir here, of which Esau is going to marry into this whole dynasty. Are you with me? Esau is going to marry into this dynasty. Why? Because who's he going to marry? A holy Bama. That's how he gets into the Horite dynasty. He marries into through a holy Bama. So then, let's get a summarized history of the kings of Edom. Here it comes. We've talked about the, the sons of Esau out, that he brought out of Canaan and, and began to expand. He marries into the Horites that are there already and begins to take on their genealogy. So here are the history of the kings of Edom. Listed probably in order of their reign, I would guess, in verses 31 to 39. Bela of Beor. His city is... Dinhaba. Jobab of Zira, his city is Basra. Hey, you know where Basra is? It's in Petra. <laughs> Look at a map. We know Basra today, though, don't we? We've had, we've had skirmishes over there in Basra with our military in the Middle East in this area. Husham, his city is Tamani. Hadad of Bedad, his city is Avith. He was famous for beating Midian in Moab. That's what he was known for. Samla of Masrika, Saul, now don't get this confused with the other Saul, obviously it's not the same man. Saul, his city is Rehoboth, that's the Rehoboth by the river. I'm sure whoever's listening to Moses is going to know exactly where he's talking about. Baal Hanan of Akbor, and also the last king that's listed is Hadar, his city is Pau. He is the grandson-in-law of Mizahab. Now, go back with me all the way to Genesis chapter 5. We were talking about this the other night. What is that chapter known as? We called it the graveyard chapter, right? I think it's interesting. There was only one person in the entire graveyard chapter who didn't die. Remember who that was? Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, this is not the same, okay? It doesn't say that these people were walking with God, so don't misunderstand me. But isn't it interesting? It doesn't say after the last one. After Hadar, it does not say he died. It doesn't mean he's still alive. Okay, I get it. <laughs> I understand that. But do you see the narrative? How it's, it's almost like a play on Genesis 5? Like this is the graveyard chapter for Esau, just like we were looking at the graveyard chapter for Seth and Cain. So we recap Esau's mighty dupes. Timna, Alva, Jehath, Jetheth, excuse me, a holy Bama. I have to say it one more time. Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. That's eleven. The ones that I looked through on my list that I can maybe find a correlation above. 
Aholibama, Kenaz, and Teman. Those three are listed in the direct lineage of Esau. The rest of these are probably just kings in the area or something. But then I want you to notice as we close, verse 43, the last statement that I drew to your attention, I took my subtitle from. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Esau's account is finished. There will be no more in the Bible about Esau apart from what we read about in prophecy in reference to their treatment of Israel. Do you understand what that means? Jacob's story will continue. Esau's is done. Just like Cain dropped off the scene and after we were given his descendants, we know nothing more about it except for they were all destroyed in the flood. Same thing with Esau. His story is over. That's it. You just lived the high life of Esau in one chapter. You just experienced all that the world has to offer to this ruddy, hairy Esau. The strength of Esau. So as we close, let's not forget how things will ultimately end for Esau's descendants. Let me name just a few. Amalek. Anybody remember how that's going to end? They're going to be utterly destroyed because of their treatment of Israel. Haman! Anybody remember him? Why don't I say Haman? Because he's an Agagite and he was descended from the king of Amalek. And how's it going to end for Haman? Just go read Obadiah. Obadiah, the minor prophet Obadiah. And look at the prophecies against Edom. They are going to be wiped off the map, is the prophecy from the Lord. Because of their treatment. In the day of Jacob's trouble, they let him die. They let him fall. And did nothing to help. And God's going to hold them accountable for that. Oh, but we can't stop there. There's at least one more I have to cover. We mentioned him at the beginning. Or we mentioned the atrocity that he committed when Jesus was born. Who was it that ordered the slaughtering of all those babies in Bethlehem? Herod the Great. He's an Edomian, which means he descends from, you guessed it, Esau. And Herod is going to come to his end. And his son Antipas is going to be called a fox by Jesus and die with worms. Have a heart attack and keel over. How does it work out in the end? I want you to turn over to Hebrews 12. How does it work out for Esau? Let's not forget what the writer to the Hebrews reminds us of. In Hebrews chapter 12, I'd like for you to read verses 16 and 17 out loud with me when you found it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Let's not forget how it's going to work out for Esau. Why did the wicked prosper? Hey, their end is not so. Never forget, there will be a reckoning. Let us neither forget how things will eschatologically turn out for Jacob. I won't have you turn over there and read it, but who remembers Revelation chapter 21 and 22? Where's old Jacob going to be in the end? Where are the twelve tribes of Jacob in that celestial city? Foundations, walls. Oh, it's going to be splendor. It's going to be glory. It's going to be beauty. And God's going to use Israel again even in the tribulation. He's not finished with Jacob. And the church has not replaced Israel. No, God's program is working. 
just according to plan. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, saith the Lord. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Sorrow, sorrow upon sorrow for sin, striking comparisons, discouraging maybe in the light of how how little Esau had, or how little Jacob had in light of how much Esau had. Sorrow when you bury dear old dad. Sorrow when you think about how good old brother did when he left God out of things. Sorrow when you think about Jacob in a coat of many colors and that's all you have left. Sorrow upon... Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's what our Lord says. Though one have not a spiritual right by promise, they may still have in the mercy of God temporary rights to rich estates in this world. But what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 